You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with Dr. Joanna Davis McGilligan. Dr. Davis McGilligan is an assistant professor of Black Literary and Cultural Studies in the Department of English at UNT. She is also an affiliated faculty member in the Women's and Gender Studies Department. Prior to coming to UNT, Davis McGilligan was at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette for nine years, where she taught ethnic studies. She is co-editor of Narratives of Marginalized Identities in Higher Education, narrating history, home, and diaspora. And boom, splat, comics and violence. She is currently serving as a member at large for the William Faulkner Society and is the second vice president for the Comic Studies Society. Her extensive area of expertise includes Africana studies, critical race and ethnic studies, literary theory, women's gender and sexuality studies, Southern Studies, and 20th and 21st Century U.S. Studies. Welcome, Dr. Davis McGilligan. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, I hardly know where to begin with you. You have such an expertise in so many areas that are pertinent, relevant, and important in our society that I feel a tad guilty starting right into comic (laughs) studies, but I can't help myself. I spent so many weekends and long, long drives taking my son to comic conventions along the East Coast, and I found the writers and illustrators were a very, very friendly bunch who loved to share things with me and their craft and their knowledge, and I got a real big kick out of one of your emails to me while we were arranging this interview when I told you about my longtime connection with comic readers and the comic culture. And you said, and I quote, I have been reading comics my entire life, but it wasn't until I got my PhD that I had any clue it would be possible to write about them or research them. What would you say to people who say, Comics is kids stuff. I'm partly sympathetic to that. I think most people, when they think of comics, think of newspaper strips from their childhood, or they think of meeting, maybe reading Archie comics. Or I remember my mom told me that when she was little, she used to go to the grocery store and my grandmother would buy her cheap, floppy. But I think that, you know, that hasn't really been true, that comics are for children since at least the 70s with the advent of underground comics. So I think that first there are newspaper strips, newspaper comic strips. Then you have the invention of superheroes and that accelerates the rise of just what people think of when they think of comic books. We call them floppies, but they kind of flip around. And then in the, around in the 1950s, there was a, I don't even know how to describe him, a politician, a 
social commentator named Frederick Wortham, and he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocents, and he argued that comics were, were dangerous for children. Ooh, um, really? Yes, yes. He argued that comics content was inappropriate for children. At this time, there were a lot of horror comics. There were no rules, right? You could put anything you wanted in the comic. And also that it wasn't really reading, that comics encouraged too much looking, gazing, and not enough reading. And that really had a, a large influence. Wortham's condemnation of comics had, a, had a, an outsized influence, I think, on why people think of them as being for children. There was happily a pushback against this in the 1970s with the advent of underground comics. And that's usually spelled with an X, C-O-M-I-X. And what are underground comics? Underground, yeah, underground comics emerged in San Francisco as part of the counterculture. People representing the life that they were living. It included adult themes. It was for purely adult audiences. And this was, you know, when the comics language began to evolve in underground comics through artists like Robert Crumb, Art Spiegelman. And they began to take the comics language and turn it into something that wasn't for children, that was explicitly not for children. And now I think, you know, if you look at The New Yorker, they employ comics artists to draw their covers. Chris Ware, Adrian Tomine, Linda Berry, Art Spiegelman, Francois Mouly, um, Art Spiegelman's wife is the New Yorker covers editor. So I think that, you know, since the 70s, there's been a growing since the comics are for, for adults, too. Um, but like I said, I'm sympathetic to people who think that they're for kids. Well, I always seem to think that they also offer good lessons in life. Even the older ones Absolutely. seem to portray, mm -hmm. hey, good versus evil and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Have you been interested in comics all your life? What What interested you in them? You know, I have been reading comics my whole life. When I was a little girl, my dad decided he was going to go back to back to college. He never finished his degree. And so we moved to Wheaton, Illinois, and Iowa City, Iowa. And part of our entertainment in these places was going to the public library. And both of them had really beautifully well-funded comics collections. And it seemed like cheating that you could go to the library and come away with a comic book. Um, and what is your mom going to say? You can't read that. It's you know, I got it from the library. <laughs> I also remember reading funnies, you know, the funny pages. Like, my, it's sad because my kid, you know, really doesn't know what those are anymore. Um, but I remember reading with my grandpa, Pogo, and he would always get on my case when I refused to do the accent because I think that they're in <laughs> South Florida. You know, getting silly putty. I mean, so, so much of a part of my life, getting silly putty and making impressions with the ink, um, the way that the ink would turn your fingers colors. I had forgotten all about that. Yes, I think about it a lot. The way it smells, the way the ink smells. So always as a child, my favorite comics, Calvin and Hobbes. I really loved situational comics like Kathy. Oh, I yes. Know like Kathy, but I no, love I love Kathy. Kathy. It was great. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't, like I mentioned, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to grad school that it occurred to me that comics were a legitimate art form and not just something for fun. Did you have to explain that when you got into higher education and you wanted to research comics as a scholar? Were you finding yourself explaining that to people or was that pretty accepted at that time? No. And you know, what's amazing is that the first vice president of the Comic Study Society is a former professor of mine, the one who told me that it was okay for me to write about comics in the first place. Um, his name is Corey Creekmer. 
he's an associate professor at the University of Iowa. And I took a class from him and he included a comic by Los Bros Hernandez, Jaime and Beto Hernandez. The comic's called Love and Rockets. And I had been reading it since I was a little girl. It was definitely a comic for adults in some ways, but I've been reading it since I was 12 or 13. And I couldn't believe it, that it was on my syllabus. Like I have been reading this for forever. Now I can write about it. I think that, you know, coming to UNT has been amazing because they treat comics very seriously here. But yeah, to some extent, you know, you still are always playing a little bit of catch up, convincing people that, no, I promise that there, there, there's a lot that can be said here. I love to hear the story of a professor that has talked to someone who's gone on, as you have, to become an expert in so many things in comic studies, certainly one of them, who was encouraged by somebody. Yeah, I love yeah, to hear absolutely. those stories that just shows you the effect people can have, the effect that different professors can have. Just like, yeah, go for it. That's good. That's absolutely. that's a worthy thing to study. I love that. Well, what would you say to people about this man that you mentioned earlier that wrote about it being a bad influence, comics being bad influence on kids? Oh, mm. yeah, Frederick Wortham. Well, you know, now thankfully we have science. So one of the things that's exciting is that they've done some, there are a number of studies that demonstrate now that reading a comic book encourages the same literacy practices as reading a prose text, reading a play, reading a poem. And it may in some ways encourage identification or encourage forms of visual literacy that are missing from prose narrative. So now we know that Wortham was incorrect. Comics are are excellent. And my child, I mentioned, is in fifth grade. And he's a reluctant reader, which is very ironic, since I'm an English professor. Um, he prefers math, which I will allow. Um, but, you know, trying to find things that he would want to read, one of the comics artists that he's, he loves, her name is Raina Teljemeyer. And her comics are memoirs. In one instance, she trips and cracks her teeth and has skip braces. And in another, she's really anxious and her stomach is upset and she learns that she's got an anxiety disorder. Really kind of simple, small things that happen to children, but are, I was just talking to somebody about this earlier, you know, it, it as my child is experiencing it for the first time, he can see, he can relate to her. And then as I'm reading it with him, I can remember how it felt to be that age. And so I feel like these comics now are and now people are people are realizing that this language is really effective for helping people relate to the characters and so the, the fact that it encourages literacy is an added bonus absolutely i see a great way to introduce things to young people things absolutely. maybe that even you know things that are developing in our culture i know in your background that i read about the different things that you talk about africana studies critical race and ethnic studies women's gender and sexuality studies not that we're going to mm -hmm. introduce sexuality to the children but but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a good way to introduce things to children i think it's a good medium absolutely i actually read an article about that very thing about john lewis's march series um, Representative Lewis, and he argued that when he was a kid, a college student, somebody gave him a, co a comic book called Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Story, and it was published by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and they were teaching children about why King, you know, the first half of the comic is an ex explanation of why the Montgomery bus boycott happened, and then the second half is this is how you, child, 
or you, young person, could get involved. This is what nonviolent direct action is. These are the steps that it would take. And so he argued that comics is part and parcel why he became involved in the in the fight, in the struggle. And so his comic is addressed to young people for them to consider how they can continue that struggle on in the 21st century, even though things look very different now. Now, I'm probably reflecting some ignorance on my part. I know I am, but it, do you put graphic novels into that genre with comics or do you separate those? Absolutely. No, I do. And, you know, one of the things I would say about comics is that they're a medium, like film is a medium. So there are lots of different kinds of films. There are Westerns, there are horror movies, there are romance movies. It's the same with comics. Comics is a medium. So novels are fiction. As a scholar of literature first, you know, and foremost, novels are fiction. But there are also graphic memoirs. Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, a family tragic comic, is a very well-known memoir. Art Spiegelman's Mouse which is a story about his coming to terms with his father's having survived the Holocaust. And then also like a study of um, like a biography of his father's having survived. It was the first comic to win a Pulitzer. So there are also horror comics in their Western. So graphic novels are exciting because it turns out people will read an entire book, like book full of comics. And then they can do things that, you know, traditional prose novels can't do. Well, I actually read... Tolkien series, Lord of the Rings, to my kids when they were younger. Oh, wonderful. And then they found this amazing graphic novel mm -hmm. of the series. In fact, I have a signed painting of it that they gave me as a gift because it was so special to us. Oh, cool. But I found that that really helped to broaden their understanding of the whole series and the good and the evil and all of that. And they really got into it. And I think there was a great value to it. And I see graphic novels everywhere. I see people carrying them around. I know they're they're really growing. Yeah. Do you find that graphic novels and comic books are more inclusive or have been faster at being more inclusive than, say, toys and that kind of thing, television shows? I would argue maybe even to some extent less inclusive. Mm, okay. It's only because the because the apparatus until recently i would say because the apparatus of comics industry has really siloed or and until recently really siloed things into you know marvel dc and then these smaller things like image or dark horse independent publishers so with the boom of the, this explosion of comics and especially comics for children and young adults that's where i'm really seeing the most growth, I think, in terms of representation. So now I think that comics, especially non-superhero comics in the 21st century, are seeing this amazing explosion of representation. But I think that that's really been late, honestly. When I was growing up, the heroes were all men. And the women were basically rescued. Mm -hmm. They were being rescued. They were helpless. Right. And then I know more maybe in terms of video games, but also comics, even say 10, 15 years ago, the women were all portrayed in these little sexy outfits and, and everything. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that changing? Do you think that's changing? Absolutely. Good news. Um, and again, I think it's changing, right? I, but again, I think it's changing maybe more for young people who seem way, way less tolerant 
of that kind of thing. There's a comic right here, Ms. Marvel. She is Muslim American. Yeah. And, you know, look at her, you know, if you even look at her outfit, she's wearing a tunic. Her cape is really cool and, and stretchy. She's brown skinned. Um, her parents are devoutly religious. So I think people are thinking about how can we represent, especially women, black folk, brown folk, disabled folk, less stereotypically with more of a sense of their humanity. Has your research about comics helped you discover anything about comics that you didn't know before? Yeah. I mean, I'm actually writing an article right now about, you know, it's for a, the Cambridge Companion to the American Graphic Novel. And I was assigned to write about the African-American Graphic Novel. And so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the way that we read comics, how we look at them, how we recognize, how does the, the process of taking something in the real world and simplifying it down to a little icon that, that anyone could recognize. What's lost? What's gained there? How do we recognize it? And what are the the implications for how we make sense of looking and seeing people in the real world? I think that one of the, I mean, it, this is just a shorthand to say that I, I've learned that comics are an unbelievably complex language that is always evolving and growing. And that also always surprises me is that there are new things that can be done in comics at all times. And I think I've also, you know, come to an appreciation of the ability of a comics artist to really master the simplification process, that iconographic process of, like I said, taking something in the real world and translating it into this comics language. It's such a, a delicate and amazing process the way that that takes place. Do you think those icons, that simplification and forming that meaningful icon, do you think it can be read and interpreted in a variety of different ways by a variety of different people, depending on Absolutely. their backgrounds? Absolutely. You know, Will Eisner, who is a well-known comics artist, but then also a comics theorist, he argues that comics require what he calls a, quote, commonality of experience. When you simplify, you have to understand who you're drawing to because people look at things differently. This is especially true about race. The way that some one person draws something may appear to be racist or stereotypical and not at all to another person. And so making sure that you have that commonality of of experience, that the, the way that you simplify is intending to convey what you want it to convey is is absolutely important. I want to talk to you about violence in comics mm -hmm. because I see that as a mother when my children started reading more uh, the the older type of comics mm -hmm. and then the graphic novels I saw a lot of violence but then I understand also they do portray some kind of reality. I mean, not that superheroes mm -hmm. are reality, but there is a reality of life in there. And mm -hmm. I have the same feeling with, with some of the video games they started playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the comics language is that it's, it's, it's sort of endemically violent. It's like, it's, it's violence is central to it. You know, the earliest comics show physical gags, somebody tripping or somebody getting sprayed in the face with a hose. And I've, you know, I'm, as my co-editor and I are working on our introduction right now, we're, we're really struggling to see why that is, you know, trying to put our finger precisely on why comics are so violent. And I think it's because there's something with the comics language that functions as a, 
a more simplified way of maybe kind of a simplified id or a simplified unconsciousness. And human beings are sort of innately violent. I learned that when I had a toddler. And, you know, you have to teach him when he would get frustrated, he would hit me and I'd take his tiny fist and like, we don't hurt with our hands. Mm-hmm. There's something about that violence and about our, our, our need to see it represented that I think is maybe not a maybe not a an impulse we should ignore i think you know about mm-hmm. greek tragedies um where people would get together and watch horrible tragedies play out or even shakespeare there's a ton of violence there and so i think that, that the ability to to see that violence safely to think about the stakes of that violence to think about you know one of the my favorite storylines in superhero comics is when the entire world gets destroyed like two people will get into a fight and then they'll just destroy an entire city and then having to struggle with the aftermath of that violence, right? Because so often you see them, you know, fighting in New York City and no one dies and everything's fine. And somehow a week later, New York City is back to how it was. So I think that being able to think about, think through what violence means and how how we as readers make sense of it on the page is actually an, an important exercise. Wow. I love that perspective. That's That's really incredibly interesting. And you are also a writer. You have you publish your own comic in Little Village Magazine. That is awesomely cool for the <laughs> University of Iowa. You got to talk about that process a little bit. What's that like? Yeah, I mean, I've always drawn, and I never really thought about making a comic. I and mean, I think, and if it had not been for for getting an iPad, because I did it digitally which really allows you to be more precise. You know, I'm teaching a, a course right now to people on how to draw comics. They're making a little four-panel comic. Oh, that sounds great. It is really fun. And they're making a four-panel comic about the pandemic, and we're getting into the weeds. We're halfway through. And they never believe me that anyone can learn to draw a comic, but it's really true. The comics language, because it requires vacation, anyone can do it. But one of the things that I really discovered when I was making this comic because it was just a page, is how long it took me to get from writing the script to drawing it to inking it to, I mean, it took me a month to do a page. And it made me have the most amazing respect for comics artists who can really, you know, I mean, a page in a month, there's no way that they would ever get a book done. Now, some people write and then some people ink, right? I mean, there are Correct. just inkers and you do the whole, the whole yeah. Megillah, as they say. Yeah, increasingly there are comics artists who do the whole thing from writing, inking, lettering, everything. Some of the comics industries, DC and Marvel, they will have different people who do each of these jobs. I would think, I don't know, maybe for me, I tend to get very motherly about my creations. You know, they belong to me. And I would feel like if somebody else was going to ink that, I'd be like, well, that's really nice, but that's not exactly the way I wanted it to be done. I am very controlling about that. I would struggle. Um, It makes us very busy people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go back to our conversation about diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. in comics. And I wanted to talk about a quote that I found uh, in a magazine article from you regarding people's acceptance of products that are more representative of the diversity that exists in our world, that exists around us, that's reality. Mm -hmm. And you were speaking about Spider-Man 
into the Spider-Verse as an example of how it could be done. It just showed how having characters of color didn't mean you take something away from the white characters. It showed that there are all these universes and you can have a manga girl, Spider-Man, a Latinx character as Spider-Man. There's no good reason to think it means you're taking something away from the legacy. You can have this multiplicity of universes. I want that put on a building somewhere. (laughs) That's a great quote. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the the film's conceit is that the original Peter Parker dies and then Miles Morales takes over. And then he discovers, well, if I'm not taking over, there are a ton of different Spider-Mans all over the place. I think that one of the anxieties is that if we diversify, we're taking things away or if we're, we're changing and it'll be irreparable. And that's not true. There will always be, let's say there's a black Superman there will always be Christopher Reeve in my imagination. Um, and he will always be influencing the black or Latinx or South Asian Superman. The, the multiplicity of universes is such a brilliant way of, of getting people to think about diversity as, as being a multiplicity, not a replacement, about it being about coexistence, not about erasure. And I think that that's what's so wonderful about that film. That is so great. That's another great perspective. The one you gave on violence and then this one, I think is just marvelous. In the same article, you also talked about the different Barbies and mm-hmm. even the Barbie in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. How, how important that must be to some poor child that's in a wheelchair to mm-hmm. finally see that they don't have to be, that their dolls are not all not like them. They can exactly. have dolls like them. And I think that's just marvelous. Really yeah, my, my kiddo went through a Barbie phase. Um, he's way out of that now. But he went through a Barbie phase and I bought him, you know, he had an Asian kin. He had a black Barbies, little girls, teens, a Barbie in a wheelchair, a science Barbie. All of these, again, it's like that multiplicity. It doesn't detract from the original 50s Barbie. It's just more people in her world. Yeah, exactly. It just adds and helps things grow and be so much more enriched. It's really amazing. I completely agree. It's almost like saying, I can't love any more people because I only have so much love. So I've already loved 10 people. I can't love (laughs) 15 people. It's sort of the same idea. Absolutely. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, you are co-editor of Narratives of Marginalized Identities in Higher Education, narrating history, home, and diaspora. What does that entail? So these are two separate collections. The first one, Narratives of Marginalized Identities in Higher Education, we wanted to to give a, a voice to people who typically are overlooked. So we had people in our collection who suffer from mental illness, who have chronic illness, people who are queer identified, people who are black or brown. Um, we had, for one of, one of my favorite chapters is from the perspective of two black women who are administrators. They're not faculty. And so a lot of the concerns about diversification don't really apply to them because they're not faculty. At the same time, they're, they're often, they often find themselves in kind of a contentious relationship with faculty. And that's important because a lot of black and brown folk tend to be in administrative positions far more than they are in faculty positions. And then the second collection, Narrating History, Home and Diaspora, Critical Essays on Ed Beach Nanticot. So I am 
I think I would say I do a lot of different things, but principally my focus right now is on my, it always has been on the experience of Black people of African descent in the United States. Not just people like me whose ancestors were enslaved, but people who are immigrants here. And in this instance, this is a collection of 15 essays on Edwidge Danticott. She's a Haitian American writer. And she's written books for children, journalism, radio, documentaries, novels, poems, name a thing. She's written it. And so our collection is really just, a, you know, an exploration of, of her amazing work and what she has to say about what it, what it means to be a Black immigrant in our time. Much of what you're an expert in and much of what you teach, I don't even know the right questions to ask you. <laughs> So I would like to know, tell me what you'd like to share. So I make sure that you're able to share the right answers to the questions that I don't know how to put together because they're so important. Thank you. What would you like to share about your research, your fields of expertise? So I would say that I always say my, my fields of expertise are primarily three, always. My primary field is Africana studies. And that refers to Black people from all over the diaspora. And the diaspora, the Black diaspora is um, a word that, that seeks to describe the flight that Black folk took from the moment of enslavement. So slave ships didn't just come to the U.S. They went to the Caribbean. They went to Black people. Wherever Black people are, that's where, that's where the diaspora is. So when I say Africana studies, I teach literature from the, literature from the Caribbean, Africa, Canada, North America, and Latin America. So the main focus of my research is always Africana studies, and then I have secondary interest in Southern studies. And so in that instance, I've always been interested in, in the South. That's where my, my grandpa is from Texas. I was born in Kansas, so it's a very different place, not Southern at all, um, very Plains. And I was raised in the Midwest, but my grandparents were from Mississippi and Texas. And I've always had a deep interest in Southern fiction. I'm not really sure why. It just has always sparked my intrigue. Um, maybe because I was raised in Kansas and I know that my ancestors fled there to some extent. I mean, they were part of the Great Migration where Black people left the South in large numbers. And so my interest in Southern studies has led me, you know, to talk about everything from William Faulkner to the beautiful writer Jasmine Ward and then also comic studies. So when I'm very lucky, I get to write about all three of them. So, for example, when I wrote about John Lewis's March, that's Africana studies, Southern studies, and comic studies. But for the most part, I'm usually working in at least two of them. And I am working on a monograph right now called Black and Immigrant, Diaspora Belonging in Time in American Literature After 1965. And this is an exploration of narratives of people of African descent who migrate to the United States after 1965. And that date is important because it was at that time that the United States eliminated its quota it had a there's no other way to put it the united states had a racist quota system from 1924 to 1965 that prohibited immigrants of i mean immigrants from africa asia south asia many latin american countries from from gaining entry we had a really strict quota system in 1965 they eliminated the quota system and since then tons of people who were previously barred have not been able to come here and I'm really interested in the way that their narratives, these Black immigrant narratives, challenge the ways that we typically tend to conceive of what it means to be Black in the United States, because their experiences are, are different. They're Black, but they're immigrant. Um, we don't tend to think of immigrants as 
as having a Black experience, just like we don't tend to think about Black people as being immigrants. I'm really interested in the way that these narratives articulate how time works, how past and present and future are described by these writers. Wow. Well, I know you've gotten rave reviews from your presentation with Ali. Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, yes. So I hope that when you finish this piece of work that you come back and share it with us as well. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been incredibly interesting. I appreciate you spending your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Joanna Davis McGillicott. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 